And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Here today, more in love with Jesus than when we walked in. God, we know that in our own strength and in our own power and in our own intellectual capacities, we don't have the ability to cross over that eternal chasm to where you are. And so we come before you desperate this morning, humble before you, knowing that you must come to us. You must, in the power of your spirit, make your truth alive in our hearts. And so, Lord, we beg you to come. We ask you to come. Speak to your people today. Reveal yourself to your people today that our hearts might be more full of you, more fixed on you. Lord, we believe and yet help our unbelief. We praise you and we ask for you 
to lead us through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. You may be seated. I bet that most of us would like to say that we trust people until they give us a reason not to trust them. I think we would like to say that we're the kind of people that give others the benefit of the doubt. But if we're honest, that kind of uh, blind optimism only goes so far, right? When it comes to the things that are really important to us, the things that really matter to us, we want someone to earn our trust. Think, for example, about um, your bank, right? You want to know that the place you're depositing your money is a safe place. We're going to be able to go back and get that money if, if you need it. Or think about your kids, you know, the, the daycare or the school that you drop them off to. You want to know that they've run the appropriate background checks and that the people are trained and that there's safety. You want to know that when you drop your kids off that they're going to be safe. Or think about even your own life. Who of us would just blindly walk into a surgery without ever asking the surgeon if he'd performed the surgery before? Or if there were certain, you know, percentages of outcomes or that sort of thing. No, you want to ask the hard questions. When it comes to those big things in life, we want to know that we can trust that thing that we are giving our trust over to. And when it comes to, to faith in Jesus Christ, it is no different. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ is not hanging over thin air. Faith in Jesus Christ is a reasonable faith. Faith in Jesus makes sense. And really, so much of what the Bible is trying to do, and especially the Gospels, like the one we've been working through, this Gospel of Mark, is trying to convince us, to, to draw us towards the, towards the reality that Jesus is trustworthy, that he is who he says he is, that he can be trusted, and that if we actually transfer our trust to Jesus, then we'll find life and life abundant. And so this morning, rather than asking the question, what is the least amount of faith that I can possibly have and still be saved? The question that God is asking us is, what kind of faith does Jesus deserve? What kind of faith is the eternal Son of God worthy of? So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Mark chapter 5. You've already heard it read this morning. We're going to be looking, picking, picking right back up where we left off last week in verses 21 through 43. And we're going to be working through this section and asking the question, what kind of faith is Jesus worthy of? And what we see first is that Jesus is worthy of a faith that is desperate. Jesus is worthy of of a faith that is desperate. Uh, last week, Jesus cast some demons out of a man, and those demons went into some pigs. The pigs ran off a cliff, and all were drowned. And when the townspeople got there, they actually asked Jesus to leave. They were scared to death. They wanted Jesus to leave. They asked him to leave, and so Jesus did. Jesus got in the boat, and he went right back over to where he came from. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 22. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So this man, Jairus, he comes and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. He doesn't care who's looking. 
He doesn't care what this says about his reputation, right? He's a ruler in the synagogue, and here he is, fall down, begging Jesus to do something. Jairus is a desperate man, but in his desperation, he's not led to despair. In his desperation, he's led to Jesus. Jairus displays for us faith that is desperate. So what is faith that is desperate? It is an urgent and needy dependence. It's urgent because there's no time to waste. And it's needy because it is realized that it has gone as far as it possibly can to fix or save itself. Jairus had done everything he possibly could for his daughter, and he had gotten to the point where there's nothing left for him to do. And so in his desperation, he turns to Jesus and he displays a faith that is desperate, down on his hands and his knees, begging Jesus to come and help. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, notice how Jesus responds in verse 24. One short sentence that tells us actually a whole lot about Jesus. It says, and he went with him. We don't know at this point in the story if Jesus is going to be able to heal Jairus' daughter. But we do know this, that Jesus was accessible to Jairus. In Jairus' moment of need, he was able to find Jesus. Jesus was available to him. Uh, a few months ago, I was driving down the road, and I was out of town, and I was actually talking on the phone to one of my buddies that I hadn't caught up with in a long time. And all of a sudden, I started getting the same call over and over again from this same out-of-state New York number that I didn't have saved in my phone. And it kept ringing, it kept ringing, and I kept hitting decline, kept getting, hitting decline. And after about five minutes, it, it finally stopped. It went away. Well, about 30, maybe 45 minutes later, I got a call from Allie, my wife, and uh, she, the first thing she said, she gasped, and she said, why haven't you been answering your phone? See, Benjamin had locked himself in her car with her keys and her phone, and she had already locked the door to the house. Now, when I got home, we had a nice little family discussion about the fact that I need to start answering my phone when something called, somebody calls me. But this is what I realized later. What I actually realized later, the more I thought about it, is even if I had answered the phone, I, would have not, I wouldn't have been able to do anything to help her. I wasn't within a proximity that I could have helped her. She had to go to one of our relatives, thank the Lord, who lives in our neighborhood, who has a key to our house, and they were able to come and let her in the house to let Benjamin out of the car. And I can tell you today, he is no longer in the car. It's great news. He was here this morning. Okay, we made it. We did it. But this is the thing. In our moment of desperation, we need someone who's both available and also powerful. Someone who both is there and within proximity and somebody who has the key. And only Jesus is both of those things. Only Jesus is both accessible to us and powerful enough to do something to help us. Jesus has come down. The eternal Son of God came from heaven to earth, and He made Himself accessible. He made Himself touchable. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And I think so many, so many of us are frustrated in life because we feel the desperation. We feel what it feels like to come to the end of ourselves, but then we turn and we call out to the wrong things. We keep calling and we keep calling, and those things don't have the power to help us. They're unavailable, and they're weak, and they're not powerful. 
And so practically speaking, every tough decision in your life, every problem you face, every sin you commit, every experience of suffering you go through is an opportunity to drive you towards Jesus and to cast yourself fully and completely upon the mercy of Jesus. So let's remember that we're asking the question, what kind of faith is Jesus worthy of? And first we see that Jesus is worthy of a faith that is desperate. But now, it's going to seem like the story with Jairus gets interrupted. And that's where Mark leads us next. And so second, Jesus is worthy of a faith that is courageous. Jesus is worthy of a faith that is courageous. As Jairus and Jesus go pressing through the crowd to attend his dying daughter, Mark introduces us to a new character in verse 25. It says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but grew worse. 12 years is a long time to suffer. Mark tells us that something had gone wrong with her body and She'd seen physician after physician after physician. She'd had treatment after treatment after treatment, care plan after care plan after care plan, and not only had she not gotten better, but throughout the 12 years, she had just gotten worse and worse. Like Jairus, this was a desperate woman. Hopeless at the end of her rope, this is what Mark tells us in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. This hopeless woman had a newfound hope. Why? She had heard about Jesus. And verse 28 tells us, For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She had heard about Jesus, and it gave her a confidence that while no physician and no treatment, and really no amount of money in the whole world could have healed her, that if she could just touch Jesus, if she could just touch his clothes, that Jesus would heal her. She had heard the reports, and based on what she had heard about Jesus, it drove her towards a courageous, risky action. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, look at what happened when she touched him in verses 29 and 30. It says, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? The reason that Jesus deserves this kind of courageous, risky faith is because Jesus has a power that this world doesn't know anything about. Jesus can make a way where there is no way. Jesus can do what nobody else can do. Jesus can heal where there is no healing. So what is courageous faith? It is a confident and assured dependence. Uh, It's confident because it actually moves forward with boldness, right? It steps out on the limb, trusting that the limb is going to hold. But it's also assured because it's not just hanging out in thin air. She did not make this risky move with nothing in mind. She had heard about Jesus. She knew who he was. She knew what he had done. And based on what she'd heard, just like the way you and I hear about Jesus, she had heard about Jesus and it pushed her to risky, courageous faith. The Bible 
Uh, the guy who is a consistent illustration of faith is a man named Abraham. Um, Abraham was this guy who, G, or who God had come to and who had promised many things to him. And one of the things that God had promised to Abraham is that he was going to have a big family. Now, the only problem with that is that Abraham was kind of old, and he and his wife were actually past the age of being able to have children. And so then, miraculously, God gives them a child. You're not sure if it's going to happen, but God gives them a child, and it seems like God is keeping his promise. But then something really strange happens. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. The son whom God had promised he was going to have this big family. God is now asking Abraham to kill him. And Abraham is willing to do it. And we get to find out why Abraham was willing to do it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. So I want to read, you to, read that to you. This is why Abraham was willing to do something ridiculous because God had told him to. It says, By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is the point, this is the part I want you to hear. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham was willing to trust God because he, he knew, you've promised me something. You've promised me a big family, and you've told me that this son is the one whom you're going to give me this big family through. So even if I do what you tell me to do, even if I sacrifice this son, I know you'll raise him up from the dead. Why? Because you promised me you would. You promised me a big family through this son, and so I'm going to take a crazy risk. I'm going to put it all on the line for you. If you're wondering today maybe where the best place to start is with courageous, risky faith, maybe you're thinking, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to do whatever God tells me to do, but you know, where do I start? I think the, the best place to start is by obeying Jesus when it doesn't make sense and when it isn't popular. Uh, we have lots of commands from Jesus that are currently unpopular, that are currently, um, it, would, it takes courage to obey them. Whether it's uh, obedience in your finances, whether it's obedience in your uh, sex life or your dating life, to actually walk in purity and holiness before God, whether it's something as seemingly generic as daily taking up your cross and denying yourself rather than asserting yourself. Maybe the Maybe the first place to start for all of us when it comes to taking courageous, risky moves of faith in Jesus is just by starting to obey the things that he's clearly laid out that, that, that go contrary to what's happening in the world around us. To obey Jesus, to do what he says when it makes no sense. Now maybe you're thinking, okay, what's so risky about coming up behind somebody and grabbing their, you know, grabbing their garment like they don't even know you're doing it? Well, this woman's worst nightmare came true when immediately Jesus stopped, turned around and looked at the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Which leads us to our third point, that Jesus is worthy of a faith that is sincere. Jesus is worthy of a faith that is sincere. So after Jesus asked the crowd who touched him, 
we learned that his disciples were following along, and they knew as well as everybody else did that in those few minutes of traveling with Jairus to go get his daughter, hundreds of people had touched his garments. So in Mark chapter 5, verse 31, Mark tells us, And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But rather than dignifying their patronizing comment, in verse 33, Mark tells us, Excuse me, in verse 32, Mark tells us, and he looked around to see who had done it. So after a few seconds go by, the crowd's waiting, everybody's waiting. Uh, this woman falls down on her face, and this is what it says in verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus didn't ask this woman to tell her story. Jesus didn't ask her to divulge all of this information, and yet she did it. And there's a few things that we have to realize about this woman, something we've actually passed over up to this point, is that in this particular society, to have an issue with blood like this woman had had for 12 years wasn't just physically debilitating. That according to God's law given through Moses in Leviticus chapter 15, that having a discharge of blood rendered you unclean. And so for 12 years, that meant that this woman could not go to church. She could not have intimate relationships with her family. And anyone else who she touched would be deemed unclean. Uh, think about this last year. Think about how weird this last year has been. Some of us have had to, for maybe 10 or 14 days or however long, do some quarantine. Uh, we've all felt a little bit socially isolated from one another. Think about what would happen if what we've experienced this year were to last for 12 years. And then imagine doing it alone. 12 years. No church. No touch. No love, totally isolated from community. And so Jesus asks this question, and then he waits. And she falls on her face in fear and trembling and reveals all of her most intimate details, her whole life story, everything she was thinking. And, and here's the key, the fact that this woman, as an unclean woman, has just touched Jesus. So what is a faith that is sincere? It is an honest and humble dependence. It's honest because it no longer cares about appearances. There's nothing left to hide. And it's humble because in pulling all the skeletons out of the closet, in pulling all the deep, dark, shameful things out for Jesus, it places our soul in his hands in the most vulnerable position. He sees it all. He knows it all. But as much as this story tells us about this woman and her sincere faith, it tells us even more about Jesus. Imagine being there. Imagine being somebody who was on the trip with Jesus and Jairus. You'd, you'd seen Jairus come up and fall at Jesus' feet. They take off headed towards his dying daughter. And then all of a sudden, as you're bustling through the crowd, bumping into everybody, all of a sudden it's a halt, and Jesus says, Who touched my garments? And there's a few seconds of silence. 
And then all of a sudden, this woman, she falls down on her face, and she starts telling this story. She starts talking about what's happened to her. And then she says that she, as an unclean woman, has just touched Jesus. And you'd be thinking, what's he going to say? How is Jesus going to respond to this, this outcast, this shameful woman? And Mark tells us in verse 34, And he said to her, Daughter, faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The same Jesus who has God's very power running through his veins, the power to cast out demons, the power to calm the raging seas, the power to heal chronic sicknesses. He looks at this woman in the face and he calls her daughter. No one has ever been more compassionate than Jesus Christ. No one has a more tender heart than Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy of our sincere faith because whatever shame we confess to him, whatever skeletons we bring out of our deep, dark closet, we can know that his heart is filled with an infinite ocean of sympathy for sinners and sufferers like us. I don't know all of you here today as well as I wish I did, but I know this. I know that there is suffering in this room, and I know that there is shame in this room. And I want you to know today that if you're wondering whether or not you can trust Jesus with your deepest, most vulnerable self, I beg you to look at this picture. Look at his heart full of love. Look at how Jesus moves towards sufferers. Who else could know your whole life story and love you all the more for it? Who else could see all the deep, dark crevices of your heart and of your thoughts and rather than recoil, would move towards you with love and sympathy and compassion? Only Jesus, the Jesus who doesn't just send out his power to fix us, but who sends out his heart to love us. I just want to encourage you today. There is nothing in Jesus Christ that would ever keep anyone from reaching out and touching him. He welcomes you with all of your uncleanness, with all of your sin, with all of your shame. He welcomes you this morning to reach out and touch him and to take hold of him. He is available to you. And I think this also has implications for us as a church. Would we continue to grow into being the kind of people that when others make honest, rugged confessions, that we, instead of raising our eyebrows and taking a step back from them, would move towards them with love and compassion, ready to throw our arms around them like Jesus has done to us. 
Now, maybe like me, you're thinking, all right, wait a second. What about Jairus? He's got a daughter who's, who's about to die. And Jesus has stopped, and he's taking this time to, to interact with this woman. And that's where Mark takes us next. So fourth, Jesus is worthy of a faith that is singular. Jesus is worthy of a faith that is singular. Look down in verse 35. While he was still speaking, talking about Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So Jairus' deepest fear has come true. His little daughter, while Jesus was dealing with this other woman, has taken her last breath. And these messengers, kind of similar to the disciples, actually present for us a contrast to genuine faith. They are rude towards Jairus. They are misguided and they are short-sighted. And so once again, Jesus does not even address them. But instead, he looks right into Jairus' face and he encourages his faith. He says in verse 36, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. There are legitimate reasons to fear, but there are more legitimate reasons to trust Jesus. What's interesting about this verse 36 here, it is the only place in all the Gospel of Mark where Jesus combines the word believe with the word only. Only believe. Believe only. As opposed to believe and. Or believe plus. Or believe if. Jesus is teaching Jairus that if we are to actually trust in him, if we are actually to put our faith in him, it must be an undivided, singular trust. All our eggs must go into the basket of Jesus. This is an all or nothing kind of thing when it comes to trusting him. So what is singular faith? It is a total and patient dependence. It's total because it doesn't diversify its trust. It doesn't spread, spread our trust out a little bit just to make sure we hedge our bets. And it is a patient dependence. Because like Jairus, when we're waiting, when it seems like we've missed the boat, when it seems like what we want has passed us by, we are called to still, even in the waiting, even in the meantime, keep our trust solely and completely in Jesus. Uh, last week, my mom and dad came over to our house for dinner. And as they approached the door, I noticed that they were both carrying things in their hands. My mom came first, and she had what looked like a bag of food in her hands. And then as I peered past my mom, I saw that my dad was carrying a mailbox. And then as he took a step closer, I realized he was carrying our mailbox. Uh, apparently, he had, tr he had tried some new maneuver trying to get up to the side of our house. And in, in the process, he had knocked over our... Uh, if you, no, he didn't knock it over. He snapped it in half, actually. It's not knocked over. I had to replace the whole thing. Now, part of me just really wanted to tell you guys that story. But the other part of me saw something in that, that he had given himself totally and completely to that backup camera. He was trusting the sensor. The car is supposed to beep when you get too close to something. He had totally and completely put his trust into that system, and it had failed him. 
But see, there's something in that that teaches us what real faith is. Not historical faith where we check the box on the facts. Not a hypothetical faith where we kind of believe that it could happen that way. But a real faith where actual trust is transferred to something else. And it's in this moment when Jairus hears the news that his daughter has died where Jesus is looking at him and he's saying, do you actually trust me? Not just do you want something from me, but do you actually trust me? Can you still believe, even in the face of what seems impossible, that I am a trustworthy Savior? So what does this teach us about Jesus? This story teaches us that Jesus has things under control. Notice how calm Jesus is. Notice how patient Jesus is. Jesus knew that Jairus' daughter was dying, and yet he's not in a hurry. Why? Because if the sovereign Jesus has promised you something, he is going to make good on it. Not even death can get in the way of the sovereign power of Jesus. But just like Jairus, you and I are surrounded with competing voices. In those moments where it's time to trust, where it's time to transfer our hope into something outside of ourselves, there's one group of voices that say, ah, it's too late. What you want's too far gone. Don't bother Jesus anymore. But I pray in those moments we'll hear the the cutting words of Jesus slicing through the impossibility saying, do not fear. Only believe. Believe only. Singular trust in Christ and in Christ alone. As the story finishes, Jesus and Jairus head towards his house where his daughter is dead. And I think this is where we really find out what it means to trust Jesus in a world full of suffering and death. And so finally, Jesus is worthy of a faith that is worshipful. Jesus is worthy of a faith that is worshipful. So at this point, Jesus only allows three of his disciples to come with him. He tells the other nine to wait back. And he, they head with Jairus towards the house. And when they get there, it's not a pretty scene. It says in verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So the disciples had questioned Jesus. The messengers had doubted Jesus, and now this last group laughs at Jesus. And once again, rather than interacting with them, he just clears the scene and puts everybody outside. There's only six of them left. Jesus, the mom, the dad, and the three disciples who he chose to come with him. They go in where the breathless 
girl is lying, and verse 41 tells us, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know, know this and told them to give her something to eat. This Jesus, the king who has authority over sickness, who has authority over demons, who has the authority to forgive, who has the authority over the Sabbath, this king who we've watched have authority over every single other thing in life, what will happen when he's faced with death? This same Jesus proves that he has authority over life and death. But what I think for, for today, what I think we need to notice is how the five of them with Jesus respond. See, in the moment of him raising her up, they actually forget all about the little girl. Right? This isn't a scene of big hugs and kisses. No one's jumping up and down in celebration. You know, no one's striking up the band and dancing around like maybe we would if this, something like this happened to us. No, the text says they were immediately overcome with amazement. All of a sudden, the fact that they got their little girl back actually moves to the periphery. And what takes center stage is that Jesus just raised someone from the dead in, their very, in front of their very eyes. When the text says that they were overcome with amazement, that word amazement literally means to be moved outside of oneself. They were moved. They were shocked. And they totally forgot about their little girl. Jesus actually has to say to them, give her something to eat. They forgot where they were. They forgot what they were doing. Because in the moment, all of a sudden, Jesus became more important than anything else to them. And that really is the essence of faith. True faith, the faith that Jesus is worthy of, is a faith that moves us outside of ourselves and puts Jesus at the center. So more clearly, what is a faith that is worshipful? It is a self-forgetful dependence. See, faith is actually worship. Faith saying, I will trust you, is actually worship because it says, I respect you. I need you. I believe that you have what I don't have. And so in faith, we are emptied of all of our power. We are emptied of all of our wisdom. We're emptied of our truth. And in faith, we magnify Jesus because we're saying it's about his power. It's about his wisdom and it's about his truth. This experience of being moved outside of oneself, of being overcome with awe, is, is not something that happens to me all the time. It's happened a few points in my life. One of the moments that I can remember being moved outside of myself was when Allie and I went with her parents to Washington, D.C. to the Holocaust Museum. And we were there in the lobby on the, uh, beforehand, and um, it was kind of loud and echoey in the lobby. And there was this group of maybe high school-age-looking kids, and they were all laughing and pinching each other and cutting up and they went in right before us, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be terrible. They're going to ruin this for everybody. It's just going to be a disaster. But sure enough, when we actually got down in there and we actually 
took that step into the, to the actual museum, even, even those high school kids who were laughing and, and cutting up just got silent. And as we all walked through for about two hours, you, just, you could hear a pin drop. See, in the face of that, really that tragedy, that horror, all of a sudden your little life and all your little problems they just kind of move off to the side. And for just, just a few minutes, you just kind of forget about yourself. And that's what happened to these people this day with Jesus. When they saw him raise their daughter up from the dead, all of a sudden, getting their daughter back just kind of moved off to the side. And they realized they were in the presence of God in the flesh. And that's what became important to them. So why is Jesus worthy of a worshipful faith, a faith that moves us outside of ourselves? Well, it's in raising this little girl from the dead that Jesus takes us to the gospel. It is in her death and resurrection that we actually begin to see something about his death and his resurrection. See, while this was a great day for this family, they got their daughter back. Um, I have some sad news she would go on to die again. Her father Jairus would die. Her mom would die. The three disciples that were there with them would die. And this little girl would would die again. But Romans 6-9 tells us this about Jesus. It says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus could have gone around that region and he could have started raising everybody up from the dead. And you know what would have happened? They would have all just died again. Because death is actually a symptom of a deeper problem. Death is a symptom of sin. Death is what we earn with our sin. Our turning away from God is what has brought death down upon all of us. And there's no avoiding it. Death is an incurable disease. And that's why the real hope on this day for both the woman whom Jesus healed and the little girl who he raised was not actually the power that he exhibited that day. The real hope for that woman and the real hope for Jairus' daughter was the fact that he was on his way to the cross where he would give up his life, where he would die for sinners and be raised from the dead victorious to never die again, so that all those who put their faith in him will also be raised to never die again. That is our only hope in life and death, that Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves in conquering the grave, and it's there at the empty tomb where all of a sudden we're moved outside of ourselves where our little problems and our life and our sense of self-worth just kind of slides over to the side and Jesus takes center stage, that we decrease and he increases. And that really is the faith that Jesus is worthy of. When we're so wrapped up in him, that there's nothing left in us to trust. There's nothing left in us to put confidence in. 
the real Jesus, the Jesus who is mighty to save, he actually doesn't really care how much potential faith we have in him. What he cares about is that we actually transfer our trust to him. Right? Going back to the beginning, doesn't matter how much trust we say we have in the bank if we're not willing to deposit our money. Doesn't matter how much I say I trust the school if I won't drop my kids off and drive away. Doesn't matter how much I say I trust the surgeon if I won't lay down and let him operate on me. And the same is true with Jesus. We can have a hypothetical faith with Jesus, but until we are moved outside of ourselves and we actually transfer our trust to him, then we haven't actually trusted him in the way that he's worthy and in the way that that matters. Hypothetical faith never moves us outside of ourselves. But genuine faith, real faith, it's actually a grace from God that puts Jesus right back at the center of our lives where he deserves to be. The only one who is worthy to be at the center of our lives is this Jesus who is both powerful enough to heal a woman and raise a girl, but also loving enough to look at us with all of our darkness and all of our suffering and all of our shame and love us. This Jesus, who in being raised from the dead is never to die again, He is the one that deserves to be the center of the universe, and that means the center of our lives. I'm excited now to worship him together. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We know that even if we are to trust you, it is going to be through your power and your strength and through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And so right now, Lord, I pray I pray that you would fill our church with the kind of faith that worships, the kind of faith that is moved outside of itself so that Jesus is elevated, that he is magnified, that he is exalted, so that everybody in our lives will, at least if nothing else, even if they don't believe in our God, Lord, that they would look and say, that person really trusts their God. That person really puts everything they have into the hands of their Savior. Lord, I pray that you would work that kind of real, genuine, honest faith in us because we know that that's the kind of faith that brings you glory. That's the kind of faith that puts you on display. And so, Lord, you come here. You be the hero. You be the Savior. As we humble ourselves before you, we praise you, God. We praise you and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we worship now. Amen.